He was always, in some chamber of his mind, perceiving himself from the exterior. He had passed a great many hours in the alcove of his private dressing room, where the mirror tripled his image into profile, half-profile, and square. Van Dyck's Charles, though a good deal more striking. It was a private practice, and one he would likely have denied, for how roundly self-examination is condemned by the moral prophets of our age. As if the self had no relation to the self, and one only looked in mirrors to have one's arrogance confirmed. As if the act of self-regarding was not as subtle, fraught, and ever-changing as any bond between twin souls. In his fascination, Moody sought less to praise his own beauty than to master it. Certainly whenever he caught his own reflection, in a window box or in a pane of glass after nightfall, he felt a thrill of satisfaction. But as an engineer might feel, chancing upon a mechanism of his own devising and finding it splendid, flashing, properly oiled, and performing exactly as he had predicted it should. He could see his own self now, poised in the doorway of the smoking room, and he knew that the figure he cut was one of perfect composure. He was near trembling with fatigue. He was carrying a leaden weight of terror in his gut. He felt shadowed, even dogged. He was filled with dread. He surveyed the room with an air of polite detachment and respect. It had the appearance of a place rebuilt from memory after a great passage of time when much has been forgotten, andirons, drapes, a proper mantle to surround the hearth, but small details persist. A picture of the late Prince Consort, for example, cut from a magazine and affixed with shoe tacks to the wall that faced the yard. The seam down the middle of the billiard table, which had been sawn in two on the Sydney docks to better survive the crossing. The stack of old broadsheets upon the secretary, the pages thinned and blurry from the touch of many hands. The view through the two small windows that flanked the hearth was over the hotel's rear yard, a marshy allotment littered with crates and rusting drums, separated from the neighbouring plots only by patches of scrub and low fern, and to the north by a row of laying hutches, the doors of which were chained against thieves. Beyond this vague periphery, one could see sagging laundry lines running back and forth behind the houses one block to the east, latticed stacks of raw timber, pig pens, piles of scrap and sheet iron, broken candles and flumes, everything abandoned or in some relative state of disrepair. The clock had struck that late hour of twilight when all colours seemed suddenly to lose their richness, and it was raining hard. Through the cockled glass the yard was bleached and fading. Inside, the spirit lamps had not yet succeeded the sea-coloured light of the dying day, and seemed by virtue of their paleness to accent the general cheerlessness of the room's decor. For a man accustomed to his club in Edinburgh, where all was lit in hues of red and gold, and the studded couches gleamed with a fatness that reflected the girth of the gentleman upon them, where, upon entering, one was given a soft jacket that smelled pleasantly of anise or of peppermint, and thereafter the merest twitch of one's finger towards the bell-rope was enough to summon a bottle of claret on a silver tray, the prospect was a crude one. But Moody was not a man for whom offending standards were cause enough to sulk. The rough simplicity of the place only made him draw back internally, 
as a rich man will step swiftly to the side and turn glassy when confronted with a beggar in the street. The mild look upon his face did not waver as he cast his gaze about, but inwardly each new detail, the mound of dirty wax beneath this candle, the rime of dust around that glass, caused him to retreat still further into himself and steel his body all the more rigidly against the scene. This recoil, though unconsciously performed, owed less to the common prejudices of high fortune. In fact, Moody was only modestly rich, and often gave coins to paupers, though it must be owned never without a small rush of pleasure for his own largesse, than to the personal disequilibrium over which the man was currently and invisibly struggling to prevail. This was a gold town, after all, new-built between jungle and surf at the southernmost edge of the civilized world, and he had not expected luxury. The truth was that not six hours ago, aboard the bark that had conveyed him from Port Chalmers to the wild shard of the coast, Moody had witnessed an event so extraordinary and affecting that it called all other realities into doubt. The scene was still with him, as if a door had chinked open in the corner of his mind to show a band of greying light, and he could not now wish the darkness back again. It was costing him a great deal of effort to keep that door from opening further. In this fragile condition, any unorthodoxy or inconvenience was personally affronting. He felt as if the whole dismal scene before him was an aggregate echo of the trials he had so lately sustained, and he recoiled from it in order to prevent his own mind from following this connection and returning to the past. Disdain was useful. It gave him a fixed sense of proportion, a rightfulness to which he could appeal and feel secure. He called the room luckless and meagre and dreary, and with his inner mind thus fortified against the furnishings, he turned to the twelve inhabitants. An inverted pantheon, he thought, and again felt a little steadier for having indulged the conceit. The men were bronzed and weathered in the manner of all frontiersmen, their lips chapped white, their carriage expressive of privation and loss. Two of their number were Chinese, dressed identically in cloth shoes and grey cotton shifts. Behind them stood a Maori native, his face tattooed in walls of greenish-blue. Of the others, Moody could not guess the origin. He did not yet understand how the diggings could age a man in a matter of months. Casting his gaze around the room, he reckoned himself the youngest man in attendance, when in fact several were his juniors and his peers. The glow of youth was quite washed from them. They would be crabbed forever, restless, snatching, grey in body, coughing dust into the brown lines of their palms. Moody thought them coarse, even quaint. He thought them men of little influence. He did not wonder why they were so silent. He wanted a brandy and a place to sit and close his eyes. He stood in the doorway a moment after entering, waiting to be received, but when nobody made any gesture of welcome or dismissal, he took another step forward and pulled the door softly closed behind him. He made a vague bow in the direction of the window, and another in the direction of the hearth, to suffice as a wholesale introduction of himself, then moved to the side table and engaged himself in mixing a drink from the decanters set out for that purpose. 
He chose a cigar and cut it. Placing